Well, here's a, here's a line from a piece written by our next guest. Since COVID-19 lockdowns began last year, the sport and recreation industry has been one of the hardest hit. And as we move towards a slow reopening, variants of concern like the Delta variant threaten the industry's safe resumption. Despite vaccination efforts, some say herd immunity is unlikely and we may have to learn to live with the virus. The opening paragraph uh, to a piece entitled Tips to Prevent COVID-19 Transmission in Sport and Recreation Facilities, Return to Play, co-written by two professors from the University of Windsor, one from the University of Texas at San Antonio, and the other participant in this group is a PhD student in recreation and leisure studies at the University of Waterloo. A pleasure to welcome Kevin Wilson to the program. Mr. Wilson, Kevin, good morning. Good morning, Sterling. How are you doing today? I'm doing just fine, thank you. Uh, the sport and recreation industry has indeed been one of the hardest hits since the COVID lockdowns began, perhaps not as hard as hospitality and restaurants, but nonetheless, it has taken a whack. Uh, what's the status in Ontario this morning, Kevin, in terms of being able to go to the gym? It is a slow resumption. The gyms are back open, uh, but definitely not operating at full capacity. Uh, and uh, it's it's been a, a huge onus on staff and on facility operators in general. Sure. Uh, because obviously they've had some increased costs and they're, they're not getting the same amount of revenue in because there's not enough or not as many people um, returning to activity as there as there once was. Again, that's the same same situation the people in the restaurant business find themselves in, Kevin, because they've had to do they've had to do nothing but put out money since all of this began in order to just stay alive or or stay in a position to be alive at the end of it all. Uh, you know, putting out money for plexiglass and reducing income in the process and all the rest of it. So it's been a lot of money out and not a lot of money back in. So just in terms of survival, uh, you know, we've seen tremendous casualty rates in the restaurant. Sector and hospitality as well. What about the, the the recreation industry, Kevin? Have you got any numbers in terms of businesses that have simply evaporated because of COVID? That's a good question, and I don't think I have numbers on how many businesses that have say evaporated. But you could ballpark um, it for us, couldn't you? No, I, I really can't. And you got to also remember that a lot of these facilities are owned and operated by by uh, public entities. Um, there are obviously smaller gyms, um, you know, CrossFit gyms, private gyms, sure, yep. that sort of thing. But um, a lot of the larger facilities that you would go to, say a community recreation center, are owned and operated by a municipality. Mm-hmm. So um, these dollars aren't necessarily always coming from a private person's pockets. They could be um, you know, bled a little bit from a uh, municipal budget line uh, because they're trying to keep the doors open of their facilities. So you won't really see those facilities going bankrupt, right. but you could see some uh, unfortunate casualties in terms of the budget line. Yeah, <laughs> you're right. You're right, because a lot of the recreation facilities, particularly in smaller communities, are indeed publicly funded or subsidized to the extent where they're not going to close permanently. But on the on the private sector side of the recreation industry, I would imagine there there are, are more measurable metrics uh, and, and those will still uh, be coming out as uh, as we come out of this whole situation. Back to the piece that you and your colleagues colleagues wrote, Kevin, uh, another line, if you don't mind my quoting you, I hope 
hope you don't. In Canada, <laughs> lockdowns have had negative impacts on levels of physical activity, sedentary behavior, and mental health. And unhealthy lifestyle trends are associated with severe complications from COVID-19 and hospital admissions. Again, this is a setup to basically talking about how sports and recreation facilities, of course, help support healthy lifestyles. Was there a measurable decline in our collective mental health when none of us were allowed to go to, to a gym for several months just over a year ago? Yeah, I mean, there were a number of sources that have, have explained and, 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 and measured the impact of, of the lack of physical activity and also our, our lockdowns um, on mental health. Mm-hmm. Um, that, it, that wasn't really a focus of our particular study was to, to measure that per se. Um, but there have been num- numerous studies that have reported uh, that. So our study was really to try to figure out ways to get people back into these centers, not necessarily to measure the impact of, um, of, of these uh, lockdowns. Oh, no question. Uh, but, but, but there's definitely a decline. Um, and it, that's our goal is to try to get people back into these centers. And and Kevin, there's no question that there, there is a a long lineup of people anxious as all get out to get back to those centers. It's a mutual thing. It's not, not as though people are going to have to be forced to go back to the gym. Uh, It's a question of, can we go now? Uh, And so let's, let's talk about what gyms and recreational facilities, as you and your colleagues have done in this piece, let's talk about what's going to, the sorts of changes pivoting, if you will, that's already been going on for the last year and a half. How is that going mm-hmm. to continue? Yeah, I mean, there needs to be an emphasis on increased cleaning, obviously. Sure. Um, if, if I was going to actually put one recommendation out uh, for both existing facilities and new facilities, uh, it would really be looking at the ventilation in the gym um, to ensure that the air isn't uh, turbulent and moving around um, so that uh, it's not kind of any cross-contamination isn't happening between participants. Mm-hmm. And uh, additional filtration devices are, are kind of installed at different levels in the gym. Um, one, thing that you, one thing that you can observe when you go into the gyms is a lot of the ventilation is up at the top, yep. um, and it's not necessarily spread through different levels of the facility. So you don't have ventilation, say, on the ground, and you don't have it at, at the height of someone's mouth. Um, and therefore, that is something that's really going to need to be looked at in the future is how are these places better ventilated, um, whether it is um, when you build a new facility, looking at the actual HVAC system or for existing facilities to install uh, smaller units um, in different locations throughout the facility, because that can also be uh, a more cost effective approach. Uh, to kind of mitigating the the cross contamination of air throughout the facility, and one of the one of the examples that would be uh, easily followed uh, would be what the schools have done, Kevin. Because again, uh, in, in, in out of necessity, uh, they've been forced, especially the older schools, to uh, uh, to include new filter air circulation systems and facilities in classrooms and around the buildings uh, to install HEPA filters and and improve the existing air conditioning and filtering systems. I mean, uh, the schools have, have really kind of blazed a trail that it would be f- pretty easy for a lot of gyms and rec centers to at least take a lead from. Yes, I definitely agree with that. Um, the HEPA filters is one thing that came up 
uh, pretty commonly and pretty frequently in the literature that we reviewed as uh, as a lower cost kind of device that you can you can add and augment your existing system. Right. Um, there's there's also ways that you can uh, implement real time uh, monitoring technology, um, so you can identify when contaminated air has um, kind of gotten into the the space that you're monitoring. Um, that might not necessarily be super cost effective for existing facilities, but that's more of a, a um, something that say future facilities should be looking at if you're going to go and, and design and build a new new facility. Is how do we implement some sort of system that we can literally monitor things on the spot um, so that we know if the air starts to get too contaminated and we need to shut things down. Yeah, and of course, uh, that technology is probably already on somebody's drafting table. Wouldn't you think, Kevin, given the fact that uh, this is not going to go away, that there is going to be a constant demand for the ability to monitor the quality of the air in whatever environment we happen to find ourselves in? I don't think that technology is very far off. Do you? I don't either. Um, And to be honest, some of the inspiration for this project was we were uh, discussing with some urban planners um, of of some things that architects are talking about and and engineers. And they had questions and they were kind of saying that there's a bit of a paradigm shift right now uh, with regards to facilities where um, about 10 years ago, everything was going green. And about five years ago, things were going to um, anti-climate change or not anti-climate change, sorry, um, being able to withstand um, uh, disasters like earthquakes and and hurricanes Mm -hmm. and that sort of stuff. And now architects and engineers are trying to make their facilities pandemic-resistant, quote-unquote. That was the word I was was told. Um, But there hasn't been a lot of research done into these areas, um, and so there's a lot of questions out as to how uh, the best way to do that is. And that was a little bit of our inspiration for this project was to, was to try to pull um, a wide body of literature together and develop some some recommendations for that particular group of, of people. Not to say I'm an architect or engineer, but um, this paper has been fairly well received from a few of our urban planning colleagues. Uh, uh, Yeah, I can imagine that. And of course, they have to be ahead of the rest of us, don't they, in terms of designing and anticipating, and who, of course, uh, two years ago would have anticipated a global pandemic. Come on, not many of us. And yet here we are, and 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 they still have to be ahead of this. Yeah, no, exactly. And, And to be honest, if they're able to implement some of these things into future designs, um, one thing that will help out is with staffing budget lines, because if you can automate some of these processes, like right. your cleaning, um, like your, your monitoring of air and technology, then you won't necessarily have some of the huge staffing costs that are associated with it. So um, it is a little bit of playing catch up in that, you know, we're, we're, we're moving kind of reactively rather than proactively mm-hmm. with our existing facilities. But with regards to future facilities, these are some things that we can implement to be a little bit more proactive. Kevin Wilson is with us, too. Mr. Wilson is a Ph.D. student at the University of Waterloo in the Faculty of Recreation and Leisure Studies and one of four authors of a piece that we found at theconversation.com entitled Return to Play, Tips to Prevent COVID-19 Transmission in Sport and Recreational Facilities. And, Kevin, you did a fine job of describing the impact of COVID-19 on the recreation industry. You and your colleagues have put 
together a series of recommendations. And let me to, and and uh, to uh, to organize your recommendations, you went to the National Institute for Occupational Safety and Health Guidelines. Tell us about those first, and then we'll zoom in on the specific recommendations you and your friends have for recreation and sport. Yeah, so these are guidelines for, for workplace settings or really uh, building settings that are, are designed to try to reduce the risk of um, not just COVID, but just about anything in the actual workplace. Okay. Um, and the first three are really about the built environment, and then the last two are about the people who are inside. Uh, so the first three are elimination, substitution, and engineering controls. Uh, so the first elimination, if you can completely eliminate the risk, from the setting, that's going to be the best way to eliminate the, the risk. And the next is if you can, sorry. No, no, no. And, and, and as, as it applies, though, in terms of your piece, eliminating or completely eliminating the hazard from the environment is obviously the ideal solution. And the only thing we have, the only tool we have, Kevin, is our vaccine passport, correct? Yes, definitely. And we ended up actually grouping elimination and substitution into the same. And it's mainly because into the same premise for this piece. And it's because the current vaccination strategies out there are more of a substitution where they're, they, on a cellular level, uh, basically replace um, yourself from being able to be um, as transmissible, transmissible. And they don't completely eliminate the actual virus from entering your body you right. can still get covid if you get a vaccine you're just not going to get it as as hard and you're not going to transmit it as easily um but uh the vaccine um strategy is still the absolute best strategy we have right because it will reduce the amount of people going into the hospital and it will reduce the people um who get severe covid cases or transmission um the next layer down is engineering controls okay um and so that has to do with the built environment, the physical environment. So if you can eliminate risk through the physical environment, um, that's kind of your next level of protection. Um, and that also eliminates uh, potential human risk. If you have uh, something that's an automated process that is eliminating risk, like some of the HEPA filters we talked about, mm-hmm, yep. that ventilation piece, that's where the, the engineering controls come in. Um, the next level down is administrative controls, and that's where we see the majority of the recommendations and the majority of things um, that we see people doing when we enter any of these facilities now. Uh, so when you when you see someone taking temperature as they walk into the right. build, uh, as someone walks into a building, that's an administrative control. It's, it's a task or something that someone is doing in order to reduce the risk inside the building. Right. Um, the next layer down and. Um, kind of the last level of protection is what we see the there's tons of debate about, but uh, the personal protective equipment. Um, and so um, if all of those other things above are not quite working out, then you've got to go to personal protective equipment mm-hmm. and use that as much as possible. Um, and that could be anything from masks to gloves uh, to, to eye care. Um, I wouldn't necessarily say that in every single position you need to be wearing gloves, but Say you're a first aid responder, um, so uh, at a gym facility or mm-hmm. a first aid attendant, um, maybe you want more than a mask. Maybe you want, you know, gloves and and some other protective equipment. If um, someone has, uh, if you have to get close to someone to administer um, first aid, like even a simple bandage, sure, because you're you're less than six feet apart. 
so that's understandable and and uh, and perfectly acceptable, I should think. Now, uh, again, these administrative controls that you and your colleagues are recommending, this really about the people who work in and who use sport and recreational facilities. Uh, and the the engineering stuff, you, you did a fine job, by the way, uh, before the news, Kevin, of talking about the air filters and all of the other modifications that are already being undertaken, as, as we've noted in schools and offices across the country. So why wouldn't they also occur simultaneously and recreational and gymnasium type facilities. So that is underway. But let's talk more about the the people aspect of because this really is where the the greatest risk lies uh, on a daily basis, right? Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. So let's talk about staffing, for example. Uh, obviously, one thing that uh, gyms and recreation facilities have had to learn are COVID protocols, and all staff on site, I'm assuming, would be vaccinated and, and have a thorough understanding of the protocols and, and the need to observe them carefully. So let's talk about staffing and what sort of people uh, are going to make it, make the cut, if you will, and stay in the business. For sure. Um, so obviously basic staffing requirements are going to be heightened. Um, you're going to need some extra staff doing some extra duties, um, like taking temperature on the way in. Mm-hmm. Um, as I mentioned, if you can figure out ways to, to engineer and, and put in some technology, then perhaps you won't need these extra staff uh, on hand. But I think for now, uh, you're going to need some people to be doing temperature checks on the way in. Um, there was one uh, there was a couple articles that mentioned um, to appoint a COVID supervisor um, who is kind of like your, your manager on duty at all times. Right. And you might have multiple COVID supervisors. So you always have, say, one person in the facility who is your designated COVID supervisor mm-hmm. who's making sure that things are uh, up to par and, and cleaned on time and, and that sort of thing. Um, communication is also really going to be key. Um, the, the people are able to communicate between each other uh, in case risks do arise or in case um, there's some un- unwanted behavior going on yeah. um, within the facility, mm-hmm. like people not necessarily wearing their masks. And I think that the public also has to realize that, um, that the communication from staff isn't meant to, um, you know, impede their experience in the building it's, it's really meant to keep people safe so communicating to your people as well um ensuring that staff are, are trained on all of these uh covid uh specific procedures is going to be really important too mm. um and that's something that pr- shouldn't be overlooked in terms of um you know just just sending your staff a video and saying hey watch this right, that might right. not necessarily be enough right like the, the the training on these procedures is going to or, or should be um, fairly comprehensive, and it could also change on an ongoing basis. In case a new public health guideline comes out, mm-hmm. you might have to bring your all of your staff in uh, to train them on a new uh, uh, piece or procedure. So it, it it does get back into what we were talking about a little bit before that you know some of these things are going to be a little costly, but. The reality is, is keeping the doors open is less costly than keeping the doors closed. No so, question. Um, <laughs> there's a bit of a cost to doing business in this in this uh, in this industry at this time, right? Yeah. Now, Kevin, you were talking about how some, uh, in terms of staffing, people are going to be uh, need to be educated on how to communicate. The messaging has to be consistent across the board. I think, though, uh, and I for your comment, I think the the buy-in level from those who go to gyms and recreation facilities. Sure, there will be the odd incident where a staff person has to become the mask police, however reluctantly. But by and large, the buy-in and 
the cooperation level at that particular uh, uh, part of our, our society is very high. Wouldn't you agree? I do agree that the buy-in is going to be very high. And um, keep in mind for this piece that we, we reviewed about 63 pieces of literature. And I do actually recall one piece of literature uh, advised that facilities should create a, a uh, like a, a mask, I don't know, tattletale system mm-hmm. um, where other occupants can like text in a number anonymously and say, hey, someone over here wasn't wearing their mask properly. Um, and so that, that we kind of chuckled that when we saw it. Um, but that was a way that potentially staff could be uh, reduced in terms of the, bo- the, the burden of staff becoming mass police mm-hmm. by allowing people to be able to kind of report it themselves, but also not necessarily having to address it themselves, then having a staff come in and, and address it. Um, rather than the people maybe getting into a heated situation in front of everyone. Yeah, well, it's. I think the except. Well, as uh, there's a new survey out uh, this week and a new Leger poll that perhaps you've seen, Kevin. Just looking at the acceptance level of Canadians from coast to coast to coast on this notion of vaccine passports, the least accepting level in the country is Atlantic Canada at seventy percent. The highest acceptance level, eighty-six percent in British Columbia. So uh, we're, we're happily, uh, especially as it comes to being able to go to the gym and stay in shape and, and you know, sort of get as normal as once it was. It's a little closer here in B.C. than other parts of the country. But uh, it's good to know that uh, everyone is at least anxious to get back to it. The, the piece, friends, is available at theconversation.com. It's entitled Return to Play, Tips to Prevent COVID-19 Transmission in Sport and Recreation Facilities, co-authored in part by our guest Kevin Wilson from the University of Waterloo. Kevin, fascinating conversation. Thank you for such a a great chat on such short notice, too. We appreciate it very much. Thank you, Sterling. Have a good rest of your day. Indeed. Our next guest joins us from the Boston area. He's written a piece at CNN.com entitled Anti-Vaxxers are using the same tactics as cults do to attract followers on social media. It's a pleasure to welcome Dr. Stephen Hassan from the Freedom of Mind Resource Center near Boston to our program this morning. Dr. Hassan, Stephen, good morning, sir, and welcome. Good morning. Thank you for having me on. Well, it's a pleasure to have you on. We need to take a few moments, if you don't mind, sir, to uh, give our listeners here in Vancouver, Canada, a chance to understand what you bring to the table. When you wrote this piece about anti-vaxxers and cults and social media, uh, You, we need to um, take a moment to let our people know here uh, about your familiarity with cults, because, folks, we're talking to a former Mooney here this morning. Tell us about your experiences with the Unification Church, Stephen, back in the 70s and 80s. Exactly. Yeah, so I am a mental health professional and been helping people for 45 years, but I got interested in this subject because at the tender age of 19, while a student in college, uh, my girlfriend dumped me, three women flirted with me, and I had no idea they were recruiters for Moonies, huh. and I knew nothing about cults or the fact that they deceptively recruit. Um, nobody intentionally joins a cult that's going to steal their ability to think for themselves and make their own decisions. 
And so you were drawn into this uh, this cult, the Unification Church. Uh, the Reverend Sun Myung Moon was the head of this particular group, thus the name Moonies, that literally became a handle that became instantly understood around the world. This was a global thing, wasn't it? It still is. In fact, Trump spoke for Mrs. Moon uh, on, on uh, 9-11, saying how wonderful the group was and what a great person she was. In the meantime, Moon went to jail, is, is it was a convicted felon. He died in 2012. And uh, his son, Sean Moon, has uh, a crown of golden bullets and has a cult splinter group called the Rod of Iron Ministry. And he's training people to use assault rifles for civil war. Mm. So the group is very active, but I was involved for two and a half years. Um, I dropped out of college, cut off from my family. I became a right-wing fascist. My belief systems and values were flipped 180 degrees um, around, and I was deprogrammed after a near-fatal van crash after several weeks in the hospital, And what helped me to get out was understanding Chinese communist brainwashing methods of the 50s. And once I was studying that and talking with former military intelligence that had written up their research on it, they encouraged me to study psychology because they said I knew more than they knew Mm -hmm. uh, because I lived it. I was a leader in the cult. Right. And I was trained to recruit and indoctrinate people. So, um in this past year, I did a doctoral, uh, I got my doctorate and did my doctoral dissertation on, on the law and undue influence and pulled together all the major models of mind control and showed how it could be interpreted through the traffic, existing trafficking laws. In fact, Keith Ranieri of Nexium uh, is in jail for 120 years That's because right. of trafficking and recently R. Kelly was convicted of trafficking. But I, I, I just wanted the, the public uh, to understand that there's a real difference between a legitimate fear where you're actually in danger and a phobia where you believe you're in danger, but there's no danger and there's no evidence that you are at risk. And using, using our minds to analyze evidence we can reality test. So, for example, if you go to a railway station and it says don't walk on the rails, high voltage, it means you should be scared to walk on the rails because right. you'll get fried. Yep. Right? If somebody draws a chalk line on your carpet and says don't walk on this line, you'll be electrocuted with 100,000 volts. You have to look at the chalk on the carpet and say, Electricity does not conduct through carpet and chalk. Right. And who is this person who's telling me who's telling me this? And what we now know is that there are over seven hundred thousand COVID deaths in the United States. Right. I'm not sure the numbers in Canada. Um, and no one has died from the vaccines. You may be uncomfortable for a few days. But you, no one has died. So one has to look at that, that evidence and go, hmm, for all the people who've been watching and listening to, uh, you know, not legitimate sources who say you're getting, you know, 
uh, chips in your bloodstream right. from Bill Gates, mm-hmm. part of a satanic Illuminati thing. Uh, I say, give me the proof and convince me. Otherwise, step aside and stop talking and stop influencing others. There's a study that was published earlier this year here in Canada by McGill University in Montreal, their Office for Science and Society, where they separate sense from nonsense, they say. The the piece, Stephen, was entitled, A Dozen Misguided Influencers Spread Most of the Anti-Vaccination Content on Social Media. The Disinformation Dozen generates two-thirds of anti-vaccination content on Facebook and Twitter. We've known this. Uh, all this year, this is, this was published months ago. Uh, so the uh, the fact that there is such a, a small group disseminating such a wide uh, uh, flow of, of misinformation, uh, what does that suggest to you? Well, the platforms are responsible or irresponsible. I think they just deleted. People like Mercola, who mm-hmm. was one of the, one of those twelve, he was on top of the list. Uh, in fact, yes, he was. Yeah, and and took him off of Facebook and YouTube. But there's so the the issue is we're living in an age of technology where the wisdom and ethics and legislative guidance is behind, you know twenty years behind, and now they so they have so much power, so much influence that uh, I'm not sure governments are going to be able to regulate them properly. And I'm nervous. I'm hoping they will. And I'm hoping that everybody gets really upset and boycotts advertisers for any platform that is um, spreading uh, disinformation that's killing people. It's really a death cult at this point. Dr. Hassan is a licensed medical health professional, one of the leading experts on cults and undue influence in the world. He's a former member of the Mooney cult, which he left 45 years ago, and has dedicated his life to helping people out of cults and destructive situations. And Stephen, I want to just pick up on that point, because you said you were a member of this Mooney thing, the Unification Church, for two and a half years. You got into a nasty traffic accident, and you had to be deprogrammed. I want to talk about deprogramming for a moment because that means if you had to be deprogrammed that means they really got into your head and it took a while to get all that garbage out talk to us about what happens during deprogramming sure so um it's a very serious mental illness um a dissociative disorder i literally had my identity uh suppressed and a pseudo-identity in the image of moon uh, took executive control. Think about a computer virus, you know, entering your computer and mm-hmm. taking it over. Right. It's, it, it, that's the analogy or a virus that invades your body and, and tricks your cells and, 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 wants, you know, and basically wants to keep multiplying and taking it over. Um, and unfortunately, most mental health professionals are not trained on how to help uh, people who've been programmed or raised in an authoritarian cult. Mm-hmm. Um, I will say that the methods have changed dramatically since the 70s. In the early days, there was literally uh, force. In my case, they just took my crutches away. 
uh, and I had a cast from my from my toes to my groin, uh-huh. so I I couldn't run and I couldn't fight. Mm-hmm. And my father's tears, however, said, and, and I was so convinced that I wasn't brainwashed and I wasn't in a cult that my father's tears. He just said, "Give us a few days." Listen with an open mind, and if you want to go back, I'll drive you. But your mother and I need to know that you're thinking for yourself. Right. And I so wanted to prove them to them that I was thinking, and by the end of five days, I was like, damn, how could I have trusted a liar? Mm-hmm. Moon was a liar. How could he be a man of God? And he taught me to lie to the members, and it didn't, I didn't, you know, I, I bought into this it ends just by the means mentality, this black and white, all or nothing, good versus evil. So to answer your question, what has evolved over the decades is where I realized that the people that are going to be most influential on any cult member is going to be family and friends mm-hmm. and, and people who close to the person who who witnessed the radical personality change. And so the work is really educating them how to interact in a, a in a helpful way and not a hurtful way to empower the person to start thinking and questioning and teaching them about mind control techniques. And so I just want to say categorically, yelling at your loved ones, getting angry, you know, at anti-vax, you know, conspiracy believers. Right is not going to be effective. It's going to make them feel persecuted and drive them deeper into the rat, that rabbit hole. But, uh, you know, starting with rapport and trust, you know, I love you, I care about you, you're intelligent, I respect you. I have a very different understanding of what, what you know, COVID's about sure. and the vaccines. I'm open to being convinced. Please reflect back on what it was that convinced you um, to believe that, that it's a hoax or whatever. And then they typically will give you 50 links and say, do your research, sure. which is not research. It's just regurgitating how they were influenced, mm-hmm. unduly influenced by the cult. And you need to be able to say to them, listen, let's pursue truth together. I am open to changing my mind. Are you open to changing your mind? You know, let's find out what's real. Let's find out what's true. You go first. You share one thing that was very persuasive to you. Right. Let's watch it together or read it together and discuss it back and forth. And then it'll be my turn to give you one thing to read or to view. And we'll discuss it. And you go back and forth. There, I want to say to your listeners, there's an outstanding book called The Doctor Who Fooled the World by Breen about the, uh, the fellow Andrew Wakefield, who's responsible for 90% of all this anti-vax uh, autism crap. Mm-hmm. And, the, and the, the journalist who wrote the book does a thorough job at debunking this man. And there's no science him saying this causality. Right. It's anecdotal uh, from from distraught parents of kids with on the autism spectrum. Um, but the bottom line is love is stronger than mind control. Right. Um, and going back to my op-ed piece, I, there was a little, uh, the editor changed the title a little bit. Cults aren't just using cult tactics 
to recruit on social media. They certainly are. Right. But they're programming people with phobias, irrational fears. Um, and in my op-ed for, this, for CNN, I talked about how I was brought to see the Exorcist movie, for example, and then Moon personally lectured us and said that God made this movie, and this movie was a prophecy of what would happen to us if we ever left the church. Wow. And it was that installation, that phobia of Satan being invisibly everywhere. And I grew up in a Jewish family. I didn't believe in Satan (laughs) or evil spirits at all. And there I was, you know, petrified to have any negative thoughts because it was evil spirits generating them instead of my own conscience and my own critical thinking. So, Dr. Hassan, the takeaway for my listeners this morning in terms of those who are still hesitant, don't be angry, stay calm, and above all, rational. Yeah, and, and, and but pursue truth. Like, who's got the, the evidence and who do you trust? Right. You, you can go to NASA.gov. They've been generating scientific research on climate change for 25, 30 years and 98% of the world's best minds, scientists, say it's real. Global climate change is real. Right. But some people watching Fox or listening to other, other channels that are saying, oh, it's all a hoax. Why? Because they sell fossil fuel oils uh, like Coke Industry or Putin or the Saudis. Right. They want to keep their money flow going. Do your homework. So it's so they want to indoctrinate people to say, ah, oh, that's nonsense. Just like the tobacco industry was saying, uh, oh, smoking doesn't cause cancer. And they knew from the beginning that it was causing cancer, but it was going to hurt their, their money flow. Indeed. Dr. Hassan. And people I- need to understand that. I appreciate your time today to help us to understand what's going on behind some of all of this. Uh, And uh, I would also invite our listeners to check out the Freedom of Mind Resource Center online. Dr. Stephen Hassan in Boston, thank you very much this morning, sir. Uh, Great to have you on our program. Thank you. Have a great day. You too. And a pleasure to welcome the president and CEO of Science World to our program. Tracy Reddys is on the line. Good morning and welcome, Tracy. It's been a while since we've had a chance to talk on the radio. Yeah, good morning, Sterling. Uh, Delighted to be here. Good to have you with us. Now, we're going to talk about backyard adventures at Science World, which is just getting underway now. But I have to ask you the big question just right off the top. When will we be able to get into Omnimax and the Science Theater and those sorts of attractions that are so popular? Well, that's a little complicated uh, story, but um, we've... uh our, our Omni Theater, unfortunately, is closed for right now because uh, we have to reskin the dome okay. uh, to prevent some leaking that has uh, started to happen over the last few years. So mm. uh, we need to address that first, and uh, and then once we do, we'll be able to uh, uh, open with hopefully some new technology as well and some great experiences. But it's, it's probably... A couple of years away. Oh, interesting. Okay, so and again, this is just wear and tear and time finally catching up with the dome, isn't it? Yeah. Well, I mean, the dome was uh, was never built to be permanent. If you remember back in Expo '86, it was the iconic uh, feature of uh, Expo '86, and um, and there were some very um, far-sighted people uh, like Gordon Campbell and uh, Grace McCarthy who thought that the dome would be an excellent place for the 
um, uh, for science world and our society, and uh, that's how it came to be. But um, as a result, um, there are some. It's it is actually quite an old building now, mm-hmm. and um, there are some things that we have to take care of, which we're hoping to get help from the community and, and government from in due course. If memory serves correctly, I do recall a few wonderful evenings spent in that place as the Ontario Pavilion during Expo 86. Yes. Right, exactly, exactly. So, Good yeah, memory. It's, it's not a new building, is it? No, no, no. And it's it's really interesting if you do a behind-the-scenes tour with Science World, you know, away from the exhibits, you can see where the old building starts starts and where uh, uh, and where the old building is uh, sorry the new building is so it's um it's quite quite interesting and you can see the p- pictures and uh, posters from Expo 86. Indeed. So it's, it's like going back in time quite a bit. It sure is. And, it, and I have that sort of flashback thing every time I go there. And we've taken our kids there for years, too. So let's talk about the latest attraction that a lot yeah. of uh, parents are going to be looking at taking their children to. That's Backyard Adventures at Science World, where uh, we can all discover what's really going on in the backyard and what a fascinating <laughs> place it can be. Yes, yes. Well, Backyard Adventures is a is a wonderful uh, exhibit. It's five thousand square feet, um, and it, we have fifteen interactive um, uh, exhibits within the the uh, the feature um, that are really designed to just do exactly what you say, uh, demonstrate for for kids and adults just the wonderful science that is going on in your backyard and, and things that you can uh, see and do. Indeed. So now let's talk about uh, the the uh, the target audience, if you will, for backyard adventures. It's clearly a family friendly thing, but you also on the website, for example, talk about specific grade levels from kindergarten through grade seven. In the case of backyard adventures, so is Science World Tracy still a destination of choice for field trips? Is that still on, or has COVID knocked that down too? Well, I think we're we're waiting to see the how the fourth wave goes, but certainly that we've had uh, field trips booked, um, and um, we're doing everything we can to make the the visit as fun but as safe as possible. Sure. And, and we've um, uh, we mandated masks from August 2020 when we first opened. We kept masks on through the summer because we know so many of our visitors have uh, are you know are not able to get uh, vaccinated. So. It's been really important for us to sort of go to the, I guess, the conservative side of, of uh, you know, making Science World uh, safe, uh, just because we believe we have a responsibility to our visitors and and um, and uh, and our staff. Um, but you know, the the great thing about backyard adventures is just just how many things people can do. And as as you alluded to, it's actually a feature for all ages. Mm-hmm. We have uh, one of our interactive exhibits is actually this huge bee bike. It's a bike that's a bee. And you get on it and you pedal, pedal and it, it helps. You're basically helping the bee uh, find nectar and ah. collect nectar. So it's called the nectar collector. And then there's an augmented reality um, sandbox where you can actually build your own islands with streams and uh and rivers and ocean uh just by manipulating sand and using augmented reality so um quite a few things uh, again for for kids but also lots of things for adults to uh, pique their interest yeah uh now let's talk about how one visits science world whether it's on a on a as, as part of a school field trip group or just with a, a family group or a, a group of friends and neighbors who want to go down uh what are the protocols these days for visiting science world tracy does one for example need to purchase tickets online in advance for openers 
you you can do that, and that's probably the most um, efficient way to do it. But you can also go to the door uh, now; it just takes a little bit longer. Oh, okay. Um, and then we have it. We have um, groups that uh, group that works with the the schools, so we book those through a different process. But uh, but right now we're we're um, uh, again in 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 the um, interests of our. Visitors and uh, our um, staff, we, we're also requiring um, vaccine cards for um, uh, uh, people, adults uh, entering the building. Um, so that's something else to keep in mind yeah. if you're coming down to Science World Indeed. and Mass, of course. Yeah. So we just, uh, Carol and I went to Imagine Van Gogh just a few days ago. Oh, did and, you enjoy it? Oh, yeah, it was terrific. And, and yeah. again, with you, you had to show the passport at the door and you wear your mask and there's just no ifs, ands, or buts. But so what? I mean, it was a fabulous outing and, and worth every little bit of effort. But then uh, what we're talking about here this morning, Tracy, is just having people ready so when they do go to Science World, there are no surprises. Yes, yes. And I always encourage people to just check the website and, uh, you know, make sure they understand all of the different uh, things. We we do try to make it as painless as possible. But uh, again, um, we want to make sure that our visitors and staff are safe as possible, too. So, so far, it's been going very well. It's been well received um, with, um, you know, with a few exceptions. But uh you know, I think um, uh, it's important for us to do our part to keep um, the public safe. And we, I mean, one of the reasons why we um, we came we came open in August 2020, um, even though you know, uh, obviously people were more locked down perhaps than even they are today. Yes. Yeah, sure. um, the you know, for us, it was important to stay open, not just to to protect our our core staff and and make sure they still had employment, but also to be a place where families could go because this has been a extremely challenging time for um, families and um, you know with kids of, of different ages sure and, uh, it's I mean frankly it's been challenging for everyone so I think you know again having a place where you can take the kids where you can take your mind off of you know the troubles that are out there and and really have a, a, a fun experience and learn at the same time I mean what could be better Exactly. And of course, uh, the learning, the best part about all of that from the young person's perspective is they have no idea they're learning. They're just there to play. Exactly. And, and, and imagine what happened. Imagine what you learned while you were playing today. <laughs> well, uh, we know, we know too, that it's really, really important to engage children in these, um, uh, what we call them STEAM-based experiences, science, technology, engineering, art and design and math, to, to get them engaged in these uh, areas uh, early, because if they uh, get exposed early, they generally become confident STEAM learners, and then they go on to high school and, and pursue um, STEAM studies and after high school uh, and post-secondary. So, and again, this all has a huge um, important uh, place in terms of the future of BC. We, we need to create more STEAM talent, so we need to get more kids engaged in these, uh, these disciplines. Do you feel that Science World, Tracy, is exerting uh, the influence it is capable of in terms of encouraging young British Columbians to consider STEAM, to consider the sciences as a, as a field of study and endeavor and fun? Well, I think, you know, Science World has done a fabulous job for the last almost 35 years now. Um, I think there's lots more that we can do. And we've actually seen this, too. I mean, the pandemic has been obviously a real challenge for us and other, um, you know, educational tourism attractions. But um, I'm really proud of the team because we've been able to pivot um, a lot of our core programs online and, and 
and we've been able to continue and, in fact, extend our reach of STEAM-based learning over this period. Um, prior to 2019, we would have um, just under 900,000 visitors, and we would do about 140,000, uh, or we, we would do outreach programs with 140,000 students and teachers right. in the province. This year, um, whilst our uh, on-site numbers will still be down, sure. um, we're, gonna, we're going to interact with about 3 million British Columbians. And a lot of that's coming through our website and our online programs. Our, our online programs will do uh, close to 80,000 participants. And when, when you think that's gone from basically zero to um, 80,000 in about 18 months, I think there's a huge opportunity for Science World to have even a, a bigger impact uh, on um, on, uh, you know, science-based education sure. in the province. Sure. And logically, Tracy, of course, one would expect nothing less from Science World than the ability <laughs> to pivot during a pandemic and in, in almost immediately initiate yes. uh, programs and interconnectivity uh, throughout the province with, with people who are interested. So the fact that you've done as much as you have, as quickly as you have, frankly, was expected of you. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, maybe I should uh, call you and ask you what, what's uh, being expected of the next month. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, I'm not, I'm not that far ahead. Nice to have you along with us on this first Sunday of October. A real pleasure to have Tracy Reddy's with us. Tracy is the president and CEO of Science World, now featuring a new exhibit called Backyard Adventures. And I wanted to ask you about this, Tracy, because I, I mentioned a few moments ago that we'd been to see Imagine Van Gogh recently down at the Convention Center. And, of course, you learned there that Imagine Picasso is coming to town just in time for Christmas and several months beyond. I see that doing the homework for Backyard Adventures, it is in part created by Imagine Exhibitions and SciTech. Is Imagine Exhibitions anything to do with the Van Gogh Picasso people? Uh, you know, I don't know 100% on, on that, um, and I'm sure I could find out for you, but um, uh, SciTech is a, an Australian company, uh-huh. and uh, Imagine uh, we've worked with before to bring uh, exhibits uh, to, to town. It's, it's important for an organization like us, uh, which has this 10,000 square foot feature space mm-hmm. that we're able to find um, fun science-based um, uh, exhibits to bring um, to town. So we're, we're very glad those folks are in that line of work. Absolutely. So listen, how long does it take, Tracy, when you've got something coming from Australia, for example, as Backyard Adventures originates from, how long in advance do you have to make arrangements to have it come to Vancouver so that uh, you can set it up and make it happen? Yeah, well, it's um, in in general, um, in non uh, non, I guess, years like we've been going through. Uh, typically, you know, we're um, we're uh, I guess ordering or, or negotiating and concluding the contracts about uh, a year, a year to two years in advance, um, because these, of course, these. Uh, uh, exhibits can go all over the world sure, yeah. um, in the in the last little while because there hasn't been as much um, uh, as many exhibits that have been um, been shown um, we've not had to, to work to that timeline but um, uh, you know we've got some we've got some big plans for next year as well um, that uh, uh, we're, we're working on and I think are going to be really exciting well, for uh, Vancouver. That's what I, that's, that's where I was going with all of this because <laughs> as, it, as, uh, as uh, it takes such a great deal of time and preparation in order to launch at one of these uh, events f- uh, effectively, clearly you've already got files on your desk that are going to be at Science World six months, a year, two years from now already, right? Yes, yes, we do. Yes, we do. And, I, we, you know, we work, I have a wonderful team 
uh, at Science World, really creative people who, and, and also people who um, really understand uh, early childhood learning. And, um, and so we, we bring those two groups together and, you know, magic happens. They um, oftentimes when we bring the exhibits here, we augment them as well with things that we think are important. For example, with backyard um, uh, adventures, we're working with the Royal BC uh, Museum to um, show a, uh, a collection that they have um, created um, over the last couple of years that talks about biodiversity and the importance of uh, preserving it and what people can do to help um, preserve that, including like wild tracking wildlife. Um, in fact, there's an app that's associated with it called uh, iNaturalist where you can actually track uh, and, and input where you've seen a wild animal and that database is uh, going to be used to help uh, you know, manage the interaction with human and wildlife uh, going forward. So, I, 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 you know, this is one of the things that um, is neat about Science World. We don't believe we have to invent everything. Mm-hmm. We, we, we have people who collate stuff, who create an experience that um, is, is really earmarked for our um, specific target markets. Um, but we're quite happy to work with uh, other third parties uh, on showing uh, showing content, and we really produce, I think, some magical um, exhibits. And I take my hats off to the team because they, they really have, they've been doing this for years, and they're just masters at it. It's a great it's a great place to go. And we've, as I said, we've been taking our kids there since they were tiny, and they're not anymore. <laughs> they have kids of their own now. But again, it's it's <laughs> well, that you can take them as gra- your grandchildren. Well, you know, I'm working <laughs> on that. She's four, and yeah, it won't be long. <laughs> okay, good stuff. So, but it. In terms of, of the of the sort of uh, uh, lineups that you have to make arrangements for and these sorts of things, uh, and what so, uh, what degree of influence, if any, Tracy, does the public have in determining what's got? Because you do talk about your team of experts and 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 the fields that they represent, but is the public's input solicited and included? Yeah, you know that's an interesting point. I don't think we have done that um, uh, in the past. I mean, we we take. Um, we uh, take uh, customer feedback um, regularly. That but those are typically more operational uh, types of things. Mm-hmm. But it's an interesting, interesting idea. The, the um, challenge is to to uh, do it in such a way that it um, works with the schedules that we have to work with in order to bring these exhibits. But <clears throat> it might be something we we <clears throat> excuse me would consider uh, later on. And you know, and I think uh, again with with an exhibit like. Um, Backyard adventures. It'll be great to get the the feedback because I think I think um, with this exhibit, you know, we're really about trying to demonstrate just how much science is in your backyard, and and also that that backyard extends to your community, which is one of the reasons why we worked with Royal uh, BC Museum on the um, on the exhibit, just to so so people understand that your backyard actually extends beyond just your home, but also. Uh, into the uh, community and and science is really in everything and everyone can be a scientist uh, you know given that and you have the flexibility as you pointed out to augment something already as as uh, well put together as backyard adventures you're still capable of, of putting on top of that package british columbia customizing features that make it even more localized and therefore more interesting yeah, and then the other thing we're doing now, because as I mentioned, we're leveraging sort of all the channels um, that uh, customers interact with us. We um, a number of our online programs um, will relate to our feature exhibit, um, and so and content. 
We've had uh, we had Arctic Voices, as you know, um, earlier this year. Mm-hmm. We had a, a, a wonderful speaker series on on uh, available online uh, with respect to speakers who are experts about the Arctic and what's happening and climate change. So I think again, you know, what we're trying to do is provide uh, integrated um, learning opportunities that you know either the child's interest or adult's interest is sparked online and then they come on site or they come on site and they um, get their interest is sparked and they go online to find out more. So I think it's um, you know it's just it's just wonderful what we can do um, and I we've got big plans for Science World. We'd like to do more. Um, and uh, I'm excited to see how the public reacts uh, to backyard backyard adventure. Sounds like a lot of fun. Interesting, you would talk about the Arctic uh, as the HMCS Harry DeWolf is tied up at dock in North Vancouver after having just oh, wow. completed the Northwest Passage, the first such completion by a Canadian yeah. naval ship since 1954. It's wow. it's been a while. Yeah. <laughs> so here we are, and that's uh, that's tied up at uh, in North Van uh, today. You can't get on the ship because of COVID, but you can certainly go down to the dock and check it out. Uh, Backyard Adventures is underway, just underway at uh, Science World, and runs uh, for quite a while. Yeah, it's uh, running till um, uh, January, and um, I just while I'm I'm I, I'm here on the air, I just want to acknowledge our. Our sponsors, because we we um, couldn't bring these um, exhibits to Vancouver without the help of um, our sponsors. So our, our presenting sponsors, Windsor Plywood, they've just been fabulous, and we've got supporting sponsors in Oldham Brown and Harbor uh, Harbor Air. So I think all of us should be thank, thanking these uh, companies because um, they're helping bring this. Uh, science to Vancouver, and, and we certainly couldn't do it without them. So Indeed. just uh, want to say, say thanks. Got to appreciate that. that good corporate citizen support, no question about it. Tracy yeah. Reddy's great to have you back on the show. It's been a while, and uh, it let's, has. let's not wait so long before our next chat, shall we? Well, maybe maybe for the next feature exhibit in, uh, that starts in uh, in uh, February, and I can't tell you about that one. <laughs> okay, it's a date. You can you can uh, you can pull a scoop right here on this show. <laughs> okay, thanks, Tracy. Thanks, Shirley. Have a great day. You too. Tracy Reddy's president and CEO of Science World, home of backyard adventures. The big lesson for us from COVID so far is how fragile our healthcare system is. Hospitals next door in Alberta are overwhelmed again this weekend, and many smaller regional hospitals here in BC are in pretty much the same shape. Has our system always been this fragile, or are we really living in a different time? Here to talk to us about it is a former Deputy Minister of Health for British Columbia and Deputy Minister of Health in Saskatchewan, now columnist with the Times columnist in Victoria. Always a pleasure to welcome Laurie McFarland to the program. Uh, the latest column is when ministers focus on shiny baubles, basic services pay the price. Laurie, good morning and welcome back. Thank you, sir. Um, maybe I'll just say what I always do on these occasions, which is that I'm talking for myself and not for the Times Columnist. Absolutely. You're an independently minded person, unafraid to speak out. And in the matter of healthcare, Laurie, you have enormous experience that you bring to the table. You talk in the article about, uh, I quote, I ran the BC Health Ministry in the early 1990s, and before that, the first regional health authority in Saskatchewan. And then you add, I was there when the music stopped. Let's take it from there. Let's back it up and talk about when the music stopped, and most importantly, Laurie, why? Okay, let's deal with why first. Um, In the 128 years between Confederation and 1995, this country borrowed $423 billion 
That means nothing. But all but 10% of it went in interest payments on the previous debt. The money didn't get spent in Vancouver or Regina or St. John. It went to New York and Zurich and London. And what happened then? The, the bond markets basically refused to buy any more of our bonds. Saskatchewan nearly defaulted. This is 1995. Mm-hmm. And as a result, there had to be cuts. Somebody once asked Willie Sutton, the bank robber in the United States, why did he bank, rob banks? Answer, it's where the money is. Mm-hmm. So if you're going to go looking for money after you've pretty well gone bankrupt, you're going to find it in the healthcare system because that's where the money is. It is by far the largest public service. You could, you could wipe out seven or eight federal ministries and it wouldn't make a damn bit of difference because the money's not there. Sure. It's, it's in healthcare. So that's, that's why it happened and that's, that's what happened. So here we were, all of the 10 Canadian provinces and, of course, the federal government, not responsible for much in terms of healthcare beyond the Canada Health Act and federal funding, but even they were seriously in debt. Saskatchewan almost defaulted. Other provinces were very closely behind them. So uh, the reality struck and uh, everyone sort of collectively realized we can't go on like this. We have to make some cuts. And healthcare, as you point out, is always the biggest portion of every budget in every province every year. So naturally, you go to where the big clump of money is. And how, what did they do? Well, when it first started in 95, I, I was running, as I've said, we're running the health ministry. The, the first cuts were easy. Basically, education, basically, healthcare system had been treated like a spoiled child for years. It got whatever it asked for. Right. So there was money to be found, and we found it. But the politicians didn't stop at that point. They kept on promising more and more and more. And so the cuts got more and more serious, more and more down to the bone. And then beyond that, so now we don't have enough GPs. There are huge waits for surgery. Wholly inadequate mental health and home care services. It's not just ambulance services that have suffered here. Every part of the healthcare system has suffered. And there are parts of the healthcare system that are basically sub, sub-third world. Indeed. Now, I'm, I'm just trying to I'm, I'm trying to establish the timeline in my mind because I've been here through all of that, Laurie. So, and I'm trying to remember now when, for example, we closed Riverview and Essendale, the the mental health hospitals in in Greater Vancouver, and threw all those people out onto the streets. Many of whom are still there, still trying to find their way. Uh, was that part of the same cutting uh, pro- process at the same time, or was that a little later? I, I, I would I would not describe. <clears throat> I would not describe it as cutting. <clears throat> what happened in Riverdale? Do you remember the movie One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest? Sure, yeah. So a huge movement grew up that it was that it was a, uh, an insult to to people's private rights that they should be institutionalized and kept there conceivably for long periods of their lives. Right. And so the promise was made: they can go out into the street, and we will follow them with services that will see to it that they get the same level of care that they would, well, we never did that. Right, yeah. How are you going to find them? I mean, it's ridiculous. You've got them in an institution, you know where they are, you make sure they take their meds, they get proper food and roof over their head. And so, yeah, in a sense, that was part of the cutting program, although what generated it in that particular instance was this sense that we had been doing something that was morally wrong. Right, so there was an element of political incorrectness to it all, all of a sudden, and that did not help the case, did it? Yep, that, that, that's correct. So when we started cutting and we started making, and, and the politicians, of course, kept making more and more promises, vote for us and we'll give you this, that, and the other thing, where are you going to find the money? Oh, we'll find it. So they cut even more from health care. So as you talk about cutting to the bone, where are we when we cut a health care system like British Columbia's to the bone? You were there. What was left? 
Well, when we started out, we started out with things like, for example, hospitals were bringing um, women who were going to give birth into hospital for, and keeping them there for four or five days after they gave birth, even though they were healthy and the child was healthy. Mm-hmm. That's, that's ridiculous. Sure. They should go home within 24 to 48 hours, and they did. That saved a ton of money, and it did no harm to anybody's health. There were a whole lot of other things of the same sort. We brought people in, to, in, in for surgery the same day instead of bringing them in the night before. Mm-hmm. We did a lot of same-day um, surgery. Um, we went to a new form of what's called a keyhole surgery in some places where the the operation takes a little longer, but you go home the same day. Right. So we, we made what you might call efficiency cuts. These made sense, that there was plenty of medical evidence behind them that this was not harmful to the patient, but it wasn't enough. It wasn't nearly enough. And so now what you've got, as I've said, is we don't have enough GPs. We don't have enough surgeons. Our hospitals are backed up, <clears throat> and not just because of COVID. They were running well over um, 100% before COVID started. So we've been basically asking the system to do more and more, and you can see it in terms of the the, the wait times that, 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 we, that I've been talking about. Well, now, some people refer to the Canadian health care system as essentially rationed health care. Yes. For example, in British Columbia, we know going into the next calendar year, 2022, there will be 6,400 knee surgeries. We know yes. that in advance. That's rationing, Laurie. Uh, would you agree with that? Uh, I don't know, criticism, observation, whatever. Do we effectively have rationed health care in Canada? Absolutely, of course. Um, it's called triage, which is a cute way of walking around what you've just said. The, the idea of triage being that you treat people who are most in danger of dying and who are most likely to survive if they're treated. Sure. Well, if you've got a bad knee or a bad hip, you're not going to die. You can be in terrible pain and you can be, you've lost your mobility, but you're not going to actually die. Um, and I'll, I'll give you a present day example, which I think is just absolutely horrifying. We are giving people who have not been vaccinated access to COVID, access, who have COVID, access to ICU beds, and other folks who have been vaccinated are dying. And that is um, triage, um, because there aren't enough beds. And the, the triage idea is, if you're the most seriously ill, then you get the treatment, even if you brought it on yourself. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And we're seeing far more uh, examples of that, actually, this weekend in Alberta next door than we are here in BC. But the principle remains the same, doesn't it? Yes. It basically, if we had enough beds, if we had enough nurses, um, we would not be where we are. And that, isn't, that, that brings in another example. We do not have enough nurses. Why don't we have enough nurses? Because it, working in a hospital today is brutal. In the old days, not everybody was really sick, and so you could spend the time that you were there dealing with the patients who really were. Mm-hmm. We emptied out the hospitals. We closed hundreds of hospital beds so that the only folks that are left are really sick. And so the nurses are just running from one bedside to another, and it's, it's exhausting. Sure. Now, there's another aspect, if you want to hear it, and this is politically incorrect. The BCNU, the Nurses' Union, insists on 12-hour shifts. If you do a 12-hour shift, and the reason they insist on 12-hour shifts is then you get two or three days off each week. If you do a 12-hour shift, by the end of that time, you are beat. Sure. And this has been done by the BCNU, by the Nurses' Union, and, and insisted by them. 
and we have to put up with it because it's a threat that they can that they can back up if they don't provide enough nurses. We're in real bad trouble. Mm-hmm. Delighted to have Laurie McFarland back with us. Mr. McFarland is a former senior bureaucrat, a deputy minister of health here in British Columbia and in Saskatchewan. Here's a, a quote from his most recent article. During the recent federal election campaign, each party tried to outbid the others in promising new health services. So we were to have free dental care, a national long-term care strategy, abolition of private nursing homes over time, to say nothing of pharmacare and much more. Essentially, what this election amounted to was an attempt to buy votes by dangling shiny new baubles. I put the all-in cost of these healthcare promises around the $100 billion mark. But how is this money to be found? In part, by allowing the most basic services to wither on the vine. And our guest, Laurie McFarland, says this vine-withering business has been going on for decades. Has it ever stopped since they started to cut in the 90s, Laurie? Essentially, no, um, because we were so far in the hole after you know all those years of borrowing that although we did begin at the federal level to run surpluses in 1995, and we ran them for some years, we went right back in the hole again in 2008 with the recession, and that generated another bunch of borrowing, which we're um, still suffering from. Sure. And, and then we had the, uh, the, the COVID thing, and we have borrowed more money. The federal government has borrowed more money in the last two years than it borrowed in 128 years. Mm-hmm. And so that leaves the population essentially behind the eight ball. And you're right. I'm just going through the list in my mind of the promises of the shiny new baubles, as you call them. Pharmacare was definitely one of them. Yep. And, of course, we all quite reasonably asked, well, how's, how's, the, how, how's this going to get paid for? And you also may recall in the campaign that uh, Mr. O'Toole of the Conservatives took a whacking from the other parties because he dithered on health policy and vaccines and a few other things. So Canadians are are really aware of our health care system. You go to any election and all Canadian voters will tell you health care is priority number one. And yet we continue to vote for parties that promise us better and more health care extensions while being incapable of delivering them essentially financially. Yeah, the, the, the issue here, you, you, you have it. The, the issue here is that we're promising new services, as you've said, like a national pharmacare program, free dental care, yeah. free eye care, and so on. Mm-hmm. We're promising to add to the burdens, but we're not promising to deal with the underlying difficulty that the health that the healthcare system's already struggling. And all you're going to do to it, if you pile on a whole bunch more responsibilities, is make those programs that are there and that are essential. And there's nothing more essential than ambulance service, for Sure. And if you can't provide decent quality of care around the essentials, you should not be adding new programs you cannot pay for. Well, and it's interesting you wouldn't bring up ambulances because here in BC, as you well know, because you're over there in Victoria and we've seen a few terrible examples on Vancouver Island recently, Laurie, BC has really hit the wall in terms of ambulance and, and prompt speedy deliveries of ambulance services anywhere in the province. We had quite a summer there, didn't we? Yes, and I, I think it's important to say here that this is not the fault of ambulance workers. No. They're not, they're not laying down in the job. The, the, the fault here is funding. But we had a situation where a 9-11 operator called the Times colonist and said that the tragedy of a man dying while on hold to the ambulance service is a daily occurrence. Wow. 
Yeah, no kidding. Mm-hmm. So what then is is the remedy? You talk about uh, what, what's gone on and the fact that, and we're pretty gullible. We have a rather long and tragic history in Canada of voting for the party that promises us the most free stuff, even though we know going in we're flat broke and all this free stuff is going to be based on borrowed money. Go ahead, borrow some more. I like freebies. So what's the remedy then, Lori? Well, part of the problem here is that Elections in Canada, it's not confined to Canada. I mean, you look, at, look at what's going on in the United States right now. Sure. But elections in Canada are not about what the country wants or needs. They're about what special interest groups want or need, because they're the people who vote. In the recent federal election, only 17 million out of 27 and a half eligible voters actually voted. That's, that's around about 60%. So the folks who are coming out and voting are very actively engaged. Mm-hmm. They know what they want, and they mean to get it. And a lot of folks who really don't understand what's going on have become kind of, they have a sense of impotence, that it doesn't matter what I think and what I say, it's not going to make any difference. I don't know how you would deal with that unless you want to do what I think something as New Zealand does and make elect make voting. Oh right, I think it's Australia. Actually, you're right. You can get a ticket if you don't vote. I don't know whether that's a a, a, a contributory factor to a positive electorate or not, but it certainly <laughs> certainly gets people up off the comfy couch, doesn't it? Well, it gets people off the couch who are, are who, who at present don't vote because they don't see any real value in it. Mm-hmm. Um, and what that means is that you basically hand the election over to people who very much have interests and in the, the, that they want dealt with, and those are the people that politicians speak to. I mean, you speak to who's going to vote, who's going to vote for you. Yeah, exactly. So uh, again, as we've seen with this uh, really quite depressing low turnout uh, by voters in the last election, and again, all Canadian voters will profess loudly that healthcare is their urgent priority number one all the time, and yet when we have a chance to go at least make an X beside a name that represents some security possibly to our healthcare system, we stay home. Yeah. There's another issue here that, that I wanted to mention very briefly, if I may. Okay, I've got about 30 seconds. All right. The, the average uh, health minister in BC between 1991 and, nine, and 2017 lasted all of 19 months yeah. in the portfolio. If you're there for that short of a time, you don't learn the portfolio, you don't know what's going on, you become very focused on wanting to have a legacy, and legacy means something that will be there after you're gone, and that very short tenure is a problem across the country. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone. Like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.